And if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those blue Bibles in one of the chairs in front of you. You can find Ecclesiastes 2 on page 539. <clears throat> Last week, we kicked off our summer sermon series on this book that is located among the wisdom books of the Bible, which also includes Proverbs. Both, we believe, written by King Solomon, son of David. I said that Ecclesiastes might strike you as a pretty frustrating book because it asks all kinds of questions and provides very little in the way of answers. But on the other hand, Ecclesiastes is a very modern-sounding book. It speaks a contemporary and relevant word with its raw and honest and sometimes cynical attitude on life. It helps us to realize that it's okay to not be okay, especially if you're struggling in your faith or trying to make sense of an increasingly chaotic world. A life of faith, we said, following after Christ does not exempt anyone from the realities of frustration and futility. Mess comes with discipleship. And that's how our graphic tries to depict Ecclesiastes. There's chaos with this powder explosion. There's randomness, but in the midst of it, there's a hint of glory and purpose that we find. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll read the, the, the beginning and the end. Listen carefully. These are God's words. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, Solomon shares thoughts that we're tempted to think. We seldom pray to you. We seldom admit to other people. Thank you for the honesty of of the word and even of a flawed servant like Solomon sharing and speaking with us today. Speak, O Lord, if your servants are listening. Amen. 
first question we'll ask, what, what can we know? What can we know? Um, I know some of you are away this week, so let me share again two big picture themes from Ecclesiastes. First, the name of the book is just the Latin translation of the word teacher that we find in chapter 1, verse 1. Um, teacher or Ecclesiastes is simply a title describing the leader of an assembly. That's what Solomon calls himself as he shares thoughts on the world, probably sharing towards the end of his life. So we're peeking into his memoirs as he looks back with a bit of wisdom gained from the experience of years. Secondly, if there's a theme to the book, it's shared in the first word out of his mouth, hevel in the original Hebrew language. Verse 2, the word means vapor or breath. It's nothingness, something here one minute and gone the next, hevel. Well, the teacher's asking all kinds of questions that are disorienting. He asks an existential question in chapter 1, basically, what's the point? At the end of the chapter, he says he's studied, he learned, he gained wisdom, and yet he couldn't figure out life. He couldn't get answers to his questions. This, too, is meaningless. Hevel. He uses the phrases under the sun and under the heavens all throughout the book, but especially in the first two chapters, ten times in these two chapters. And, and this phrase helps us understand where he's coming from a bit. He's trying to figure out life from a, a certain angle, specifically from a, a naturalistic perspective. The naturalist has the attitude that, well, no one can prove there's uh, anything like a God, uh, let alone know Him specifically. So we can't know anything that is unseen or spiritual. All we can know is what we can confirm with our senses, stuff that's, in Solomon's words, under the sun under the heavens. This is all we can know, this closed box world of ours. What we can know, we can figure out through our own wisdom, through our own learning, through our own efforts. Naturalism and humanism go hand in hand. The the teacher's thinking goes like this. He's putting on this hat, this naturalist's hat, to try to see things in the world from that perspective. And so his thinking goes like this. If this is all there is, then nothing you or anyone has ever done ultimately matters. It will not make any difference in the end. Your whole life is like a raindrop in the ocean, a moment of a splash, if you can even notice it. But then it's drowned out by everything else that proceeds. It's gone. There's no evidence. Hevel, vapor, breath, poof. That on a cold winter morning. You see your breath, but three seconds later, there's no evidence that it was ever there. That's what Hevel is. It's so difficult to grab hold of. If this is all there is, if everyone ultimately just dies and goes away and no one remembers you, if there's no heaven or hell, if there's no eternity, if there's nothing beyond everything under the sun, then what's the point? Why bother? So the teacher tries the hedonistic answer. He chases pleasure, verse uh, chapter 2. And part of that pursuit involves the humanistic answer. I'll make a name for myself. Humanity has been trying that since Genesis 11. I'll make a name for myself. I will um, produce meaning of my own accord through my own efforts and my own wisdom, my own strength. Both of these are typical modern approaches to life, especially in this part of the world we live in. 
the Metro New York culture, chasing pleasure, making a name for ourselves. Um, in the midst of uncertainty, so often we look for an escape, whether that's another drink or entertainment options or physical pleasure. And so often we double down and work even harder to make a name for ourselves, to attain a certain level of accomplishment and status so other people will know that person is someone. This too is meaningless, Solomon says. That leads us secondly to a little closer look at chapter 2, dream versus reality. The chapter starts with the teacher making a, a thoughtful decision, I'll put it that way, to pursue pleasure. A thoughtful decision because this isn't some out-of-control stretch of life like the prodigal son who spends everything that he has on one wild season of partying. I don't think that's what chapter 2 is describing. Verse 1 says he's testing himself with pleasure to find out what is good. He's, he's trying to figure out whether the pursuit of pleasure, everything under the sun, will bring about good will make life worth living, will provide meaning and purpose to his life. There's a big difference between mindless and thoughtless consumption. Here's an example. Mindless consumption is eating whatever you want, when you want, however much you want. Stuff in your face, mindless consumption. Thoughtful consumption looks more like recognizing still that enjoying good food and drink as gifts from God are blessings. He's enabled us to enjoy the, the good from the land, but He also calls us to be stewards of our bodies that are called temples of the Holy Spirit, thoughtful consumption. Understanding self-control means um, picking and choosing those moments of indulgence. And the question I want us to consider this morning is, do you ever, do you ever wonder whether your life is more like one of those models versus the other, mindless versus thoughtful consumption. And I'm not really just talking about food. Um, do you just rush into pleasure or recreation? Woohoo, party time! You know, every opportunity that you get, just rush headlong into it. When, when you come into some money, maybe you get a raise, a bonus, somebody gives you a gift, do, do, do you immediately think of how many ways you can spend that money? Is time off always better than work? Is going out to eat always better than a simple meal at home? Is having all kinds of plans all weekend long always better than sometimes being home, alone, quiet, with space in your life to think, to contemplate? Is more always better? The teacher's conclusion after a life of having it all and trying it all is this too is meaningless. Here's a list of the things he pursued. Laughter, verse 2, alcohol, projects, nature, money and possessions, sex, status. And by the way, um, a, a quick aside on verse 7 that says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Whenever we come across that word or that idea in Scripture, we have to do um, one of two things or do both, both things. Uh, first, get out of our heads the, the picture of the American South and slavery in our own context, because that's not what the biblical reports 
have to do with. And secondly, very often, maybe different for the king, but very often the Bible is reporting on uh, a sort of indentured servant model where somebody was going to work for a number of years to pay off debt. In Hebrew law, um, Israelite law required that they be set free after seven years. That was the maximum that you could pay um, to, to, uh, in terms of servanthood to um, someone's household. But the general reality that we need to remember when we come across tough stuff like this is that what the Bible reports, it doesn't support. Just because it reports some practice doesn't mean it supports it. And um, polygamy is a good example, even in Solomon's life. The Bible reports a handful of historical figures as practicing polygamy, but in every single instance, the Bible reports that. It also shares pretty honestly all of the relational chaos and, and brokenness that comes with that very unhealthy practice. And in Solomon's case, he had a thousand women in his harem. One thousand. Some wives, some concubines. First Kings 11 takes the time to explicitly tell us that the downfall of the entire kingly line of David is directly attributable to his lustful lifestyle that turned his heart away from the Lord. Not everything the Bible reports, it supports, including slavery. That was an aside. Back to the list. What we need to say in terms of the pursuit of pleasure in these categories or any other is that these items on the list are in and of themselves good things. They are not the problem. The thing itself is not our our downfall. It's the heart of the human being interacting with these good things that gives too much importance to these things, that believes the lie that any of these can truly satisfy our hearts, can provide meaning, can make me happy. The Bible describes that all-too-common universal practice as idolatry, the placing of someone or something in the place of God, in the place of ultimacy, of highest good. Listen to C.S. Lewis writing in The Allegory of Love. The real trouble about fallen man is not the strength of his pleasures, but the weakness of his reason. Unfallen man could have enjoyed any degree of pleasure without losing sight for a moment of the first good. What's the first good? It's God Himself. He's the highest good. He's pure beauty. He's lasting treasure. Unfallen man, without sin affecting our reason, our our ability to to process and think and, and analyze, unfallen man could have enjoyed, Lewis says, any degree of pleasure without falling for the illusion that that high degree of pleasure could ever have competed with God Himself, right? There, there would have always been, without sin, this understandable hierarchy. God, pure beauty, lasting treasure, and then everything else, as good as He has created it. Do you remember when you had to actually buy a book to do research for a trip you were going to take? We bought... Um, the Fodor's Guide to Bermuda back in the day. This was pre-internet for some of you who can't quite grasp what I'm talking about, okay? No Yelp, no open table, a, a book made out of paper and ink that had to be updated every year as restaurants went out of business and things changed. We, we bought a Fodor's Guide for Bermuda and did our research for our honeymoon months in advance. And 
Uh, of course, the restaurant section was of particular interest to me. And uh, one of them caught our attention because it was known for a local delicacy named shark hash. And I didn't want no touristy food. I didn't want to go where everyone else was going. I wanted to go to the real deal. We made a reservation. We, we had it booked on our calendar. We took a cab. We sat at the outdoor um, table. We uh, glanced at the menu, uh, knowing already what I was going to order, out of curiosity for what they were offering, and then waited. And when it came, I took one look. I took one bite and decided it was inedible. <laughs> Shark hash. The, the, the dream in my mind was this luscious fish stew that some fisherman had just caught and this island chef was preparing. It was literally green powder. The article didn't tell me that. Um, I actually ordered another dinner. Paid for the first. I've never done that in my life. And I've ordered some weird stuff. Tried some weird things in my life. The dream tasted really good. The dream was phenomenal, in fact. I was convinced it would satisfy. I, would convi- I was convinced it would bring me this evening of happiness. The reality, in contrast, was culinary hevel, vapor, <laughs> meaningless. Something that was there one moment and gone the next. If, if you're pursuing pleasure... If you're chasing the dream, falling for the delusion of when I dot, 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 then I'll be happy. When I make VP, then I'll be someone. When I'm finally able to afford that car or that trip or I make partner, then whatever. When I finish school, I just, I just want that beach house. I just want that marker that I've made it. it the dream is tantalizing. Sometimes it gets you physically amped up, the, the emotional and mental version of salivating. You know, there's a physical response of just longing for the thing, whatever it may be. But Solomon has chased the dream. And in fact, Solomon has lived the dream. And he's like that tour guide that's far down the path that, of, of chasing pleasure. He's like that tour guide calling back to everyone behind him on the road saying, there's nothing here. There's no pot at the end of the rainbow. There's just shark ash. <laughs> hevel, hevel of hevels, the book starts. The most empty of emptiness, the most meaningless of meaninglessnesses. You don't need more or better. You think you do because you believe. It's a step of faith. It's, it's an act, an orientation, an attitude of faith. You believe that what you're chasing will bring you happiness and contentment and satisfaction and meaning and worthiness. And what you really need, what we all actually need, is an entirely different pursuit. We're on the wrong trail. And it's not something that you can accomplish It is something Christ has accomplished already that you can access by faith. More on that in a minute. In verses 12 to 16, a section that I didn't read, the teacher basically wonders, what's the point of pursuing and living according to wisdom? Because both the wise and the fool die in the end. They're forgotten. 
And he ends up sounding like Asaph in Psalm 73, who's having a real hard time. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocent. Innocence. Because the wicked are prospering all around him. They seem carefree. They're they're getting richer by the day. He's struggling in his faith, wondering why God allows such injustice until verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Worship reorients Asaph's heart so that he's reminded that God is the righteous judge who promises to vindicate all his people. He will right every wrong. Injustices will not last. No one gets away with anything. And Asaph can deal with a lifetime of looking around and continuing to trust God even though things aren't going out that well for him. There are two things I want us to learn from this, two lessons. The first is this gathering of God's people for biblical worship is not just another event on your calendar. It is the anchor point of your calendar. It's, it's the spiritual antioxidant that forms a layer of protection around your heart and mind that enables you to fight back a little bit better against the cancerous influences of the world that are always wanting to infiltrate and, and take over your soul. Biblical worship is your anchor point not just an event. You need to be here. I'm preaching to the choir, of course. But this should be what your week is oriented around. Not because of me, but because we, we gather to worship the King. We're reminded of these things. We're like Asaph, what is going on till I enter the sanctuary of God? Then I understood, oh yeah, it's about Him. Oh yeah, chasing after all these things is not going to bring me contentment. Jesus will. All of his promises will be fulfilled in my life, and I will lack nothing. Oh, yeah. Thank you, God, for that reminder. A second lesson is uh, interacting back with Ecclesiastes, because that glimpse of an answer is not found here. We said that last week, right? It it, it asks so many questions, it provides no answers or, or very little But the unity of the Bible helps us understand and appreciate a book like Ecclesiastes. Scripture helps interpret Scripture. All over this book of Ecclesiastes, there are dot, dot, dots, and there are question marks, some of them directed at God, and we're left hanging. But the unity of the Bible and Scripture helping us interpret Scripture means that the answers and conclusions to every single one of these questions is all over the book, meaning the Bible, but ultimately all found in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It gives us license to figure out how to answer these questions when we turn behind and we turn forward. Lastly, how to respond. Three thoughts to uh, wrap us up this morning. First, consider what's meaningless so you can better discern what is meaningful. Um, last week I said that the, the whole book, chapters uh, 1 through 12, 
are, are really one long sermon, and only at the very, very end, the last two verses, do we get a glimpse of how the teacher puts all these pieces together. His conclusion is basically God will make all things right. His wisdom and perfect will alone will make sense of everything that otherwise is meaningless. Here's the irony. As he's sharing these cynical, raw, honest thoughts and questions throughout the book leading up to that very modest conclusion, the teacher intends to make a meaningful statement every time he declares everything is meaningless. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. If someone says there is no absolute truth, well, the reality is they're making an absolute statement about truth. They're saying you can't know anything for sure, but I know for sure that there's nothing. And you have every right to say, how do you know that for sure? That's not what the teacher's doing. He's not playing those games. He's creating tension when he points out everything is meaningless so that we will be prompted to pay a little bit more attention to figure out what is meaningful. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Everything under the sun is meaningless. What is the point? Hevel of hevels, vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. I can't find what my heart longs for. Lewis says, shouldn't you get a clue here? (laughs) You keep chasing after everything under the sun. Have you looked above the sun? You think you'll find the answer under the heavens. Have you looked above the heavens? When the teacher's declaring what is meaningless, he intends to create this tension in our lives. And, and one of the dangers is, for, for many people, chasing after everything under the sun, and they don't find it, and they're left with despair. That's where the church of Jesus Christ comes in, right? With the only message of true and lasting hope, there is an answer. You're looking in the wrong place, under the sun. The answer is in, is in Christ, above the sun, to use that phrase we find so often in Ecclesiastes. Where else can we look? Hmm. That leads us to the second lesson. If everything under the sun is meaningless to the end, we need to invest in eternity. In the midst of very busy lives, Ecclesiastes is a great prompting for us to spend time thinking about how we spend our time. Because investments in eternity are the only things that will last. Your invitation to a neighbor or friend to come to church to join you on a Sunday morning where they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will hear a message of hope, they will perhaps at least begin to hear answers to their questions through the Word of God. They'll hear truth to counter all the falsehood that they have been surrounded by, and they may place their faith in this Jesus and receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. That that investment you make in a phone call or a knock on the door or a text message or another text message to poke and prod 
that's a moment in your life that will be talked about in a million years. Remember that text you sent? Um, I don't know if you, some of you remember, you know, this golden oldie, um, heaven, was it uh, um, thank you for, uh, for giving to the Lord? I am a life, you know, uh, I don't know if you, if you know that old song, right? But, but the songwriters is giving thanks to that nameless person who played such a mundane role in their life years ago in, in helping bring them to Jesus. That moment is far from meaningless, that, that moment is pregnant with eternal meaning. How, how are you spending your time? Ecclesiastes needs to be one of those irritants in your life to poke and prod you to stop and wonder, am I, am I spending this finite treasure that I have, time, years, to honor God with everything that I, He's given me? In comparison, that amazing investment portfolio that your skillful decisions have constructed and your trophy case, whether literal or figurative, and your list of advanced degrees and, and every, everything that you would put on your CV to get that job of your dreams, forgotten, irrelevant, meaningless in a matter of decades. Nobody will remember Certainly nobody will be talking about it in heaven in a thousand years. Your, your conversation with a child in Sunday school, so many of you devote yourselves on Sunday mornings to kids' club. Right now, they're not even hearing me say this. Or Sunday school in the middle hour with Sunday school assistants and nursery volunteers and all of you who invest in our children's lives. That little conversation that might not even occur to you was substantial, but encouraged faith that spoke into doubt, that built a, a measure of relational and spiritual health, that stuff lasts. That has generational impact. That might save a marriage in 30 years. And that may have eternal impact if it's accompanied by salvation. Absolutely meaningful moment of your life in a world that is so filled with hevel meaninglessness. One last Lewis quote. You can tell who I've been reading this week. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Look everywhere under the sun, you won't find what you're looking for. Look above the sun into the heavens and you'll find everything. Last lesson, how to respond. Realize that all the questions the teacher asks which Ecclesiastes doesn't and can't answer, are all finally and fully answered in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. In verse 9, the teacher says, after all of his exploits and pursuits, he says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Greatest status and fame Above all others, hevel, meaningless, poof. They're gone, they're one moment, a moment of glory gone the next. At the top of the world, fame and fortune forgotten because the next star takes his place. Listen, 
the only way you will find lasting approval in the eyes of another, status, belonging, achievement, the only way you'll find that, ironically, is if the other has perfect insight. Now, that doesn't make sense if we're living and thinking purely under the sun, because if you want affirmation about your skill, you usually want the judge to have the least insight possible. So, for example, it's easy to impress a three-year-old with a little coin trick in your pocket. Wow, how did you do that? You could do it over and over and over. They wouldn't wonder at all. They would just think you're awesome. You are amazing. You can impress a three-year-old with how well you flip a pancake, and they think you're, you're you know, talented beyond belief. But try that coin trick in front of Penn and Teller, and they'll just yawn. They'll smirk. They'll think you're a child. Try that uh, pancake-flipping technique in front of the, the panel of cooking show judges, and they'll just wonder, you know, what, what else do you have for us? It's nothing. And yet, the judge of all the earth who knows all things about you, who sees into your heart with perfect insight and who you would therefore think is going to be the biggest condemner, the biggest um, negative assessor that, you know, hold up a zero from the judge's scorecard. He is the only one who can provide you with perfect approval, affirmation, and status that can never be taken away. How? You can never be good enough. You can never chase enough and accomplish enough in this life under the sun. All you can do is let go and express simple, childlike faith in the perfect son who offers you credit for his perfect life of obedience and who offers you credit in his perfect substitute death on the cross that has paid every penalty that all of your sin has ever earned. And then the father will look upon you and see the son and declare you righteous and call you beloved son or daughter and welcome you into his kingdom. Only when you know this greatest truth with spiritual eyes can you find everything Solomon declared you could never find here under the sun. Come to Jesus, trust in him, and find your heart's satisfaction. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for questions that give voice to our hearts, things we may never think are okay to say to you, Lord. Ecclesiastes says for us, and you blessed it, you inspired it, you enabled it by your Holy Spirit. It's okay for us to ask these questions, Lord. But we pray that that same Spirit that inspired the writing of this book would be at work in our hearts to give us a quick prompting to run to Jesus. Whatever questions we have, whatever doubts, whatever dead ends in life we've come into, Lord, quickly show us that a life of following after Christ doesn't fix everything right away, but puts us on the right path of not chasing or accomplishing, but trusting. We trust you, Jesus. You are wisdom in the flesh. Give us such wisdom to know you, to see you, to fall in love with you. We pray. Amen.